Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Where the Wild Things Are, the new Spike Jones adaptation of the Maurice Sendak classic. I'm here with Dan Coyce. Hello, Dan. Hey, Dana. Speaking to me from D.C., who is a movie critic for the Washington Post. And also, Dan, do you want to elaborate on your introduction? Uh, sure. I also um, write movie reviews for True Slant, and uh, I'm a contributing writer at New York Magazine. I let you elaborate that time because I didn't actually know about the True Slant gig until until this call. So there's the three places. The list gets longer every time as the freelance market dries up. Well, it's nice that you're dominating some portion of it anyway. <laughs> Paid or unpaid. Let's warn so, everyone, of course, that we will be uh, spoiling the hell out of where the wild things are. So if yes, you're not previously aware that, that Max survives, you shouldn't listen to the rest of this. Yeah, he makes it back home. And the dinner's still hot. We can't spoil that fact that the, the dinner's, dinner's still hot. Still Oops, hot, too yeah. late. Oh, no. So I have a lot to say about this movie. I don't know where we want to start. I feel like even though I've had so many venues to talk about this incredibly hyped movie this week, I still have more to say. After reviewing it and talking about it on the Slate Culture Gabfest podcast, and I may write further about children's literature and adaptation next week, but it's a pretty rich topic. I was disappointed in the movie, but I still feel like there's a lot there to talk about. Um, yeah. Let's just start out, you know, number one, we didn't see it together, so I have no idea. Did you like it? Um, I did like it quite a bit. And I Did think you expect to? I did. I mean, I definitely walked into it thinking I was going to love it and wanting to love it. And I think that in a lot of ways, my response is going to be similar to a lot of viewers in that I'm going to love it despite the things that are obviously wrong with it um, in, the, in, this, in the way that one loves an unruly child despite the things that he does wrong as well. That's so sweet and affectionate toward the movie. I feel like I went in a little bit more jaded, although I really try, I really try, even when I have a somewhat of an eye-rolling feeling about a movie before I go in, to be open to it. And there were things about this movie that surprised me really, really pleasantly. The, the main one being, and I hope we get to talk about this a lot, is just the wild things themselves. I mean, it's so key for this book that has such a slim story that the visuals be right and that those creatures be rendered in a way that, that feels at least faithful to the spirit of the book. And I, I really thought they were. I don't know what combination of magic went into making them and, and how much of it was, you know, guys in HR Puff and Stuff suits and how much of it was digital face animation and voice work, but they were fantastic. Do you agree? Yeah, I really love them a lot and thought that that was one of the great strengths of the movie were those wild things. And I can tell you a little bit about um, how they came to be. They were um, created by uh, Jim Henson Studios, um, and they were, in fact, enormous suits that um, actors, performers war. Um, but not, not the guys who were speaking, right? James no, no, Gandolfini not, James is not Gandolfini in that suit. Was, was not out in the Australian outback wearing a big-ass suit. No, they They're were, probably um, separate... at, like, like mimes, right? Or dancers. I mean, people who really know how to manipulate a right. puppet and suit. The big, strong people, too, because those are big suits, and they really needed to be able to move them quickly. Um, and the original idea was that the, um, the faces, in fact, had animatronics embedded in them, and so the idea was that the people would be giving full performances, syncing their voices up to the voice tracks, giving facial expressions and things like that actually while they were shooting this stuff live in Australia. Apparently when they got to Australia, um, it became quickly evident to Spike Jones and the production staff that the the heads were too heavy and the actors were literally walking around unable to lift up their enormous gigantic crania. Um, and so they stripped all the animatronics out of them which gave them all sort of a blank-faced look um, throughout filming and then their faces were replaced digitally in post. Right. Um, I remember reading also that it was, it was a question of expressiveness, too, not just the weight, but that they just decided that they could make the faces more expressive on computer than right. they could ever do with, with animatronics. Right. Whereas you can make bodies... I have to, cough. Wait, I have to take a break. <coughs> Excuse 
Sorry. <coughs> okay, start that again. Uh, right, whereas you can make bodies more expressive in person than you ever can through animatronics, I think is sort of one of the technical lessons of this movie for the future filmmakers of the world. Well, and also texture and volume as well. The, the, the creatures just seem so real because they really were there. So in that great scene, which is in the trailer, I think anyone who's seen the trailer has seen it, where they all jump on top of each other in a huge heap. There right. wasn't just a there wasn't a sense of a kid with cartoon characters. There was actually a, a sense of danger that he could be crushed by these huge 10-foot tall creatures. Right. At, at one point, one of them rolls over onto his legs and he gets stuck. And it's because Max Records, the kid who played Max, really was stuck. And they're covered in dirt and bits of leaves and... Their hair gets matted, and they they have a real solidity to them that for that for all sort of the technical marvel of of companies like Weta and the, and other effects companies that have really mastered the art of um, of artificial CGI characters, they still have never they still have not been able to approach sort of the kind of clumsy realism of actual people doing actual acting, right? That that this movie delivers. But didn't it bother you that the creatures were not just given enough to do? I just felt like after all the work that went into, you know, lovingly creating these characters and making them look so right, that there was such a lot of flabbiness in that middle section of the movie, the section where, I mean, if you know the book story, where he's on the island with with the beasts. Um, It was almost as if the beasts were assigned characters, like, we got to give him some characters, and that Dave Eggers, the screenwriter, was just sort of hanging labels on each monster. Here's the neurotic one, and here's the angry one. It's interesting. Like, I do get the impression that one of the problems that a lot of people are having with this movie um, is, I mean, as you said in your review, this uh, feeling that the that the creatures are sort of one note, and that that one note, for the most part, is pretty glum. That they that they you just don't get like a sense of joy out of them. Um, that you were hoping for. In, in I don't a... know that that was my problem with them necessarily. I mean, I didn't get something out of them that I was hoping for, but I don't necessarily want to know that much about the creatures, whether they're mm-hmm. they're glum or joyful. I guess I just, I, I, unlike you, I was not excited about this this movie's very existence. I sort of feel like mm-hmm. where the wild things are is so perfect as it is that there doesn't need to be a movie, and I'm sorry if that's a nostalgic point of view. I am open to something new being done with the text, but it just felt to me really padded out, that central section. It's not so much that... I cared that the affect was depressive. It was just um, just sort of noodling around narratively. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, although I guess I would ask you then what would the alternative be? I mean, I don't know that I would want to watch a movie anymore that didn't really give the wild things any characteristics and was literally just 75 minutes of rumpus. Well, I guess um, and... make it a sh- make it a shorter movie for one thing, and also I guess <laughs> make something make something really be at stake. One big problem be at stake on the island. I mean, I don't know. I'd be a terrible screenwriter if my adaptation of Where the Wild Things Are would suck far worse than this. <laughs> but <laughs> but all I can do is speak speak as a critic. I mean, I, I felt that there was no driving narrative in that central part. That there wasn't a problem that they were all trying to solve together. That there was a lot of sort of splintering off into different stories that really dissipated the energy. So. I don't know, it's it's almost too big of a critique for me to say how it could have been fixed. Right, and I mean, it's a very fair point, and to my mind, that is both a strength and a weakness of the movie, in the sense that on a moment-to-moment basis, watching the movie can be an occasionally frustrating experience, but as a cohesive work, I think that it does what it basically sets out to do, which is to serve not really as a movie for children, but to be a movie about childhood, structurally and emotionally to be a movie about childhood and that's why i mean as i said at the beginning my response to it was not unlike my response to being with an actual child and that i found the movie at times 
irritating and, and I found it at times boring, but I also found it at times inspiring. And at the end of it, I was sort of deeply happy for the time that I had spent with it in the same way that I am when I spend time with my own children. Oh, that's so sweet. I only wish I had had that reaction. Well, since we're on the topic, <laughs> since we both have small children, you have, I believe, a five-year-old and a two-year-old or something like that, right? right? How old are your girls? Four and two. And I have a three-and-a-half-year-old. So what do you think about taking your kids to this movie, taking kids in general? What would you advise parents of kids of different ages about, about the appropriateness of this movie? It's like I could uh, I could imagine a child as young as like seven or eight being able to handle this movie. Maybe even younger than that, if they are thrill seekers, as um, your daughter is. Um, I can't really imagine. There's a child handling, under the and age... then there's liking, right? Right. I can't imagine a kid, many kids under the age of like twelve or thirteen, really liking it, or at least liking it all the way through. I mean, I kind of view. I mean, I can, I can almost sort of see a kid sitting through this movie and feeling sort of the same way I did, feeling enraptured at times and really annoyed at other times. But whereas I, you know, I'm a grown up, I can modulate my reaction and not fidget and not get pissed off and not want to leave, any kid under the age of 12 for long stretches of this movie is going to be wondering, why Why am I here? Why am I watching this? What's going on? When is something going to happen? Um, I think that goes back a little bit to my argument about the middle section being flabby, because I actually think most children would really love the first 20 minutes and the last, however it is, how long it is, 10 minutes or something when he comes home. I think that mm-hmm. everything that happens between Catherine Keener, who plays the mother, and Max Records, who plays Max, the little boy is great and really well done. I think there's maybe a little bit too much, you know, information about the mother's romantic life and background that we don't really need. But I think that just that connection, which I think is what the story is about, just this connection between the mother and the little boy that gets broken with his tantrum and then, you know, sealed again at the end when, when he comes back from the land is, is really beautifully done and that a three-year-old would, would understand it and like it. Mm-hmm. The only part of the movie that moved me emotionally, the one moment actually, I mean, there were some things, lots of things that I admired or found sort of whimsical or, you know, kind of fascinating to watch like the beasts. But the one moment that I came anywhere close to tears was, was the way Catherine Keener looks at him in the very last scene when he comes home, when he's having his soup. I just thought she was so beautiful that her, her you know, interpretation of the, the mother who's sort of sorry, you know, that she took her punishment a little too far was so nicely done. I mean, uh, Catherine Keener's entire performance, I think, is really great. I was I was particularly fond of the scene early in the movie when she um when max is sitting at her feet while she's at the computer and she has him tell her a story and he tells a you know a wild kid made up tale about tall buildings and vampires and stuff and and it cuts to her just sort of very patiently typing it out in mm-hmm. like microsoft word on her computer as if to like give it to him later and i loved that i thought that That's was a great scene just a beautiful a great moment. scene i love the little detail when he's playing with her um with her pantyhose like the seam right. at the toes of, it's just so the way you experience your mother as a little kid right you see the bottom half of her body you see like her feet and her shoes all the time you know right and that was a that was a really cool detail so i think that all the things that it got really right about childhood had to do with with max and and the human people and that somehow the beast never quite worked for me Okay, Dan, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, Audible.com. As our regular listeners know, Slate has a sweet deal with Audible.com, the uh, leading provider of audiobooks online, where if you sign up on our show page, which is uh, www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler, you can get a free audiobook with your membership, which you get to keep even if you decide not to keep the membership. And you really should check it out because there's an amazing archive of stuff there. We searched through for a recommendation to go with this uh, Sendak themed spoiler and we each have one actually right Dan we, we just entered Sendak into, into Audible I wanted to find something that was actually uh, an interview with Maurice Sendak or something where you could hear his voice because I actually think that listening to Maurice Sendak speak is far more edifying than anything you'll get out of this movie and uh, what I found was that he did a, um, a fresh air with Terry Gross about three four years ago 
is one that has Patricia Clarkson as well. They were the two guests, but separately that week. So they're actually, they both would be really interesting to hear. So you can find that on Audible. And what was yours, Dan? Um, I was happy to find out that Where the Wild Things Are itself is inexplicably available as an audiobook. It is all of six minutes long. It is narrated by Peter Shickley, better known to fans of classical music parody as P.D. Hubach. Um, oh, nice. And as I, yeah, yeah. And as I said, it's six minutes long, which actually sort of seems long when you consider um, the story of Where the Wild Things Are. And while we were doing this commercial break, our producer reminded us that we did not um, get around to our typical uh, plot summary of the movie. Um, so I guess I will do that now. And, and uh, the plot summary is... Max gets in a fight with his mom, throws a tantrum, runs out the door, sails a boat to an island, hangs out with a bunch of wild things, sails a boat back, and has dinner. Yep, that's pretty much it. I mean, if you yep. know the story, you basically know the story of the movie. Just imagine 80 minutes of padding, of fetching monsters <laughs> in, between <laughs> the, uh, in between the pages. I should well, point let's out talk about that kvetching. We had, um, there are a lot of sort of big name voice, there's a lot of big name voice talent. In this, there are a couple of Academy Award nominations and awards among the the voices of the wild things. Um, the main one, Carol, the sort of the the wild thing who we spend the most time with, is voiced by James Gandolfini. Um, did you find him uh, distracting? Could you just not stop thinking about Tony Soprano? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it it really is an effort, and I and I didn't want to to have to do that. It makes me feel bad toward James Gandolfini, if nothing else. I mean, the guy has a right to some career post The Sopranos, but you know, this is right. what happens to TV actors, especially really, really iconic roles like that. And it was only by seconds that you could forget that 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 main monster was not Tony Soprano. Or the worst. Although part was I think he did a wonderful scenes... job. Oh no, he was very good. But I agree with you that it was distracting. It. Um, the worst part for me was scenes when the monster has been running or exerting himself, and then you get the the Tony Soprano heavy breathing, like right in your ear. And I was like, "Wow, that he sounds exactly the same. He still knows how to right. breathe heavily." It um, sounds like he just cur- he just curbed someone, right? Right, right. Uh, but one of the things that I I mean that I do appreciate about this movie is that um, is that, I mean it's not you know Jim Carrey and Seth Rogen and Jonah Hill and just, and you know Anna Faris and like every other person who you would expect to be in in doing the voices in a kid's movie. I mean, I kind of think it's adorable that in this movie we get not just James Gandolfini, but Chris Cooper and Forrest Whitaker and Catherine O'Hare. Like, who... It feels like this is the only movie that would cast those voices as these characters, whatever you thought of those characters. Like, it was so pleasing to me that that we were not watching the movie that could have been made out of this material. Um, and maybe in the end, that was one of the things I liked best about it was that it wasn't oh, yeah, the movie was, that could have happened. There were so many movies I was dreading that this turned out right. not to be. And even though I don't, in general, like when you know animated voice casts are stuffed with famous talent, this was a completely different feeling than the, the Madagascar two form of of doing that. Right? I mean, it right. wasn't sort of glitzy or cynical, and it wasn't in order to get people in seats or anything like that. It was obvious that all these people really cared about it. And that's the thing about this movie. I feel almost bad harshing on it because it was done with such care and such taste, and it's got so many exquisite touches. And I mean, all those things are really admirable. But just to me, I'm just sad that the whole movie doesn't doesn't become something something transcendent. I know it did mm-hmm. for some people, but uh, yeah. And I guess what I like about it is that it, is that it came closer to transcendence than I ever could have imagined such a movie could have come. I mean, there's a. I would encourage you and anyone who's listening to um, read my favorite review of Where the Wild Things Are so far. With apologies to you, Dana, um, was actually <laughs> written by a, a guy named Vern on Ain't It Cool News. Um, 
I don't know if you're familiar with Vern, but he tends to review things like, um, you know, uh, Resident Evil 4 or things like that. But he wrote a review of Where the Wild Things Are that was actually, I thought, extremely cogent and extremely smart, despite the fact that it led off with um, his complaining that this was by far the worst of the Wild Things series and um, Nev Campbell never got naked at all. But... um, he all right, Vern. Made... I haven't read anyone on this yet because I just finished writing my own piece myself. Right. So I'm really curious to get out there. I'm sure that I'll be surprised by you know the, the division that it creates. I right. just want to mention one thing before we sign off because I didn't get it. Oh, sorry. Can I, to... can I finish one point about Vern's review? Oh, sure. Before we move on to the next thing, I'm sorry. Andy will be beautifully edit this. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but what I what the point that Vern made in his review that I really liked is something we've touched on a little, which is the disaster that this movie could have been, and he makes the point that when you hear the words where the wild things are the movie you can almost see the poster right you can see i think he describes it as max standing there with his arms folded wearing like joe cool sunglasses and a wild thing standing next to him with his arms folded also wearing joe cool sunglasses and they're both carrying skateboards and underneath it it says born to be wild and the fact that that's not the movie that we saw to me is like a small miracle in and of itself yeah, absolutely. I just, I don't know how, I, I completely agree with that sense of relief, but I don't know how many sp- points Spike Jones should get for the fact that other people are making really egregious animated adaptations of children's literature. I mean, his is right. not egregious, but it can still have flaws in other ways. It can still be egregious if, if like you, you view that no matter how sort of heartfelt it is, maybe it didn't need to be made at all. Yeah, not, but I, but that's not to say that someone couldn't have surprised me and that there's not someone out there. You know, it really truly would be nostalgist and retrograde to say there are books that should never be adapted. But the fact is that literary adaptation is very tough, children's or adult. I mean, how many great books have been made into great movies? And, that you know, there lies a whole other conversation. But it, it really is a, a tough thing to do. Right. Um, there's one thing that I want to touch on before we sign off, just because I haven't had any other chance to complain about this anywhere. There was There was an image from the book that I really, really missed in the movie and that I was really surprised was not... Used. I don't expect the the movie to be you know faithful to every page of the book, but it did seem to be checking off a lot of the boxes that you were sort of expecting. You know the sort of um, beats that you expect from the book. And his room doesn't turn into a forest. Instead, he runs away from his house, right? And then sort of gradually the the field that he's run away to transforms into this forest that he then sails away on. But there's this very uh, iconic image in the book where he's in his room pouting because he's been sent home, sent to his room without any dinner and the trees actually start to grow up in his room and the inside becomes the outside. It seems so inherently cinematic and Spike Jones-like or sort of Michel Gondry-like that I'm really mm-hmm. surprised that that image wasn't used and I wonder why it was rejected. Uh, it's. I mean, it does strike me that there is at least an attempt made uh in this movie to separate the interior and the exterior a little bit, or at least to give the sense of danger or adventure that the image of the trees growing up in the bedroom might not have had. And I think a lot of viewers will actually have a problem with that. I think that you had a little bit of a problem with that. As you told me that, that what the story basically becomes, if you read it literally, that he literally runs away from home in like the middle of the winter wearing a wolf suit. And he doesn't get home till midnight, and his mother has been staying up worried sick about her nine-year-old who's out in the middle of, like, a Rust Belt city by himself. Right. Knowing that he actually is out of the house when he disappears also changes the ending of the movie. Because when he comes home, 
a certain amount of time has elapsed. We don't know how much, but the clock actually reads midnight when he's sitting there with Catherine Keener having the soup at the end. And so I was sitting there trying to calculate, you know, assuming that this is in some way a dreamscape that he's gone to. Whether he's Mm -hmm. really gone or not, it doesn't seem to Catherine Keener that he's been gone for that long, right? But during those hours, are we supposed to believe that she was sitting at home wringing her hands desperately wondering where her son had gotten to? It completely changes the stakes, maybe in a way that, that Spike Jones wanted to do, obviously in a way that he wanted to do, but not necessarily in a way that that aids the movie, I don't think. It's tough. I mean, it's tough to make the case, uh, to make any other case other than that they're saying that little Max ran out of the house and was gone for like four hours. I I mean, out walking around in a wolf suit uh, in like 30 degree weather. Right. I agree that that is like a troublesome part of the movie. I didn't catch the clock at the end of the, uh, uh, at that final scene. That's really interesting. But yeah, that, that is tough and it does raise the stakes and it does add to the danger, but but it's a curious choice to make in a movie that that specifically minimizes danger. Like even when he's being chased by the wild thing played by James Gandolfini, who yelling at him, that he's going to eat him. And there's no point really where you feel like Max is going to be hurt because you know this is this is his fantasy. This is his tantrum uh, in real life, and those and in Max's brain, that's never going to end in injury. But so to have this sort of weird note of actual possible danger is sort of like a, a a tough thing to stomach in this movie. Yeah, it's a fantasy danger, and he actually is eaten at one point in a way by one of the wild things, because KW, the wild thing that's sort of like the hipster girl who's voiced by Lauren Ambrose, puts him in her mouth or her stomach in order to hide him from the other wild things who are looking for him, and it's this weird... I, th- I thought it was a really cool scene, actually, although it was sort of part of that long, padded, overlong part, but it, it's like this birth when he emerges from her mouth, and it's a completely safe feeling to be to be swallowed by this monster. I thought that was kind of a cool exploration of this, you know, psychoanalytic image of being being eaten, being right, eaten I in thought, a good way and eaten in right, a bad way. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I thought it was beautiful, and I thought it was one of the many things in the movie that made me sort of marvel at the the many 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 different ways that they use those wild things to get at um, Max's feelings and to get at the feelings of being nine and the things you crave and the things you fear and the joys that you feel and the sadnesses that you feel. Um, I think a lot of people will, will find it too schematic or will think it is schematic. Will feel like oh well each wild thing represents this and this and this and this. But I sort of I came out of it thinking it was more complicated than that and that no one wild thing was meant to mean any one thing, but instead they were meant to contain sort of all the various struggles of being nine, which to me was a really, really difficult age. It was an age where I was frequently happy and playing and feeling a sense of freedom, but was also frequently feeling put upon and, and misunderstood and, uh, and not free. I mean, completely restricted by my parents and, and, the things that were going on in my life and I thought that the movie got at that in a lot of interesting ways for all its frustrations you know you're convincing me to, I'm, I was already going to see it again but you're convincing me to try to see it again with an open mind I mean when somebody as smart as you takes the movie seriously I should probably let go of some of my defenses and my Sendak love and, and take it seriously too I mean I don't doubt that you took it seriously I don't doubt that the problems you had with it are real because many of them mirror the problems that I had with it I think that I was more forgiving of those problems first of all because I was hopeful about the movie in the first place but also because it really did touch something that I, uh, specific emotions that I remembered from my childhood Um, emotions of uh, feelings of helplessness and feelings of anger which I think for a lot, a lot of people don't remember about being nine you remember those more about your teenage years but for me my teenage years were 
great, actually, and uh, much more rewarding than but then being nine, which was a, a sort of a series of constant frustrations. No, oh, little Dan, tormented little Dan. Yeah, I turned out okay though. You did. Well, Dan, thanks a lot for uh, joining me on this late spoiler special. Thanks, Dana. And please, please come back and join me again soon. I will. Our producer today was Andy Bowers, who's also the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.